0: Stop the music! Ink! Had a kadoo! Had a It's got the whole world
1: spooning! Ha ha!
2: John Freda is an award-winning actor, screenwriter, and playwright. He is often recognized for his critically acclaimed role of Rocco in Luke Besson's film The Family with Robert De Niro. Other films include Run with Eric Roberts, and recently Big Time Adolescence with John Cryer. He received Best Actor award in *Sisyphus's Supper at the Take Two Film Festival in New York City, which premiered at Cannes Film Festival. His TV credits include The Deuce, The Blacklist, and Law and Order SVU. John is also the co-producer actor in 50 to Death, an award-winning web series about three boomers jousting with the 21st century, having achieved the unique recognition of being the number one comedy series in New Zealand. His New York theater credits, among others, include critical recognition for his performances of George Tabori's Mein Kampf, Imagine That, a solo show about Jimmy Durante in which John wrote and starred, the only current show about Jimmy Durante approved by his estate, and Norman Bimes on a Darkling Plane. John also appeared as a nationally traveled Inspector Clouseau character, having performed that role regionally in The Pink Panther Strikes Again. His recent theater credits include Over the River and Through the Woods and Breaking Legs, as well as Other Desert Cities. Among his writing credits, his screenplay, Who Wants to Marry My Husband? was produced and distributed as a feature film by Echelon Entertainment Group. He also co-wrote with Letta Sarah, the 13 times awarded screenplay Say Nothing about the untold story of Italian incarceration in American concentration camps in Maryland during World War II, and won three screenplay awards for his thriller feature script, Sparks. His sci-fi comedy musical Alien Adventure, The Adventure" won four awards at the Midtown International Theater Festival in New York City. Weekly, John teaches the Improvisation Workshop at the sag After Conservatory in New York City. Prior to acting, John served as a naval officer, taught undergraduate and graduate students in psychology, was a research psychologist for the government, and had a private practice in clinical psychology. He has a Ph.D. in experimental and organizational psychology and a postdoc Ph.D. in clinical psychology. John also consults as an executive presentation coach with Harrison Monarth, a New York Times bestselling author and owner of GuruMaker. John is a proud member of SAG-AFTRA and Equity. You can find out more about him on his website, johnfreda.webs.com, or via Instagram, at johnfreda. Aaron T. Gibson is an actor, comedian, director, and producer. She has been taking her proverbial bite out of the Big Apple for the past, well, a substantial amount of years. She is an actor, stand-up comedian, MC, voiceover artist, writer, producer, and also director. Erin grew up in Aspen, Colorado, amid the fresh air of the Rocky Mountains. She was producer, writer, and performer of her own one-woman show, Comedy Isn't Pretty, Tragedy Isn't Ugly, Nine Voices from the Feminine Side of Generation X, a solo show performed in the cabaret clubs in New York City and Tri-State area writing her new one-woman show about the search for her mother and her biracial identity. She has most recently appeared as an MC and does stand-up at the Broadway Comedy Club, Greenwich Village Comedy Club, Westside Comedy Club, and Dangerfields. Recent acting credits include the recurring role of Ms. Monica in the TV series Team Tune, currently on Netflix. In film, the mother in... Bon Vida School, and Judy in Forever Home, a new web series about rescued animals and the humans that rescue them. You can find that at foreverhomeseries.com. Aaron speaks fluent French, Italian, and Spanish, and teaches those languages as well part-time. Designs, crafts, and sells her own jewelry, rides horses competitively in the past, works as a PATH International CTRI instructor with a therapeutic riding group which works with special needs and physically challenged children and adults on horseback, gardens in her community garden in Harlem, walks her dog, catches her two devious cats in the act of almost everything, plays amateur gourmet mostly successfully, watches anything bizarre on obscure cable channels, and worries about anything and everything late at night. Erin is a member of SAG-AFTRA, N-Y-W-I-F-T, True, Path International, C T R I A C H A. She is also a graduate of True PDMP, Producer Director Membership Program. She can be found at her website, Erin, that's E-R-E-N, Aaron T Gibson.com or on Instagram at Erin T Gibson.
1: Hey, Hi. Isaac. How are you? Okay, man. Hi. Hi there. Welcome, John and Erin. Hello. No, Buongiorno.
3: Bon Bonjour. Bonjour. Eh, muchas gracias. Buena dias. <laughs>
0: Aaron speaks four languages.
1: <laughs> yeah, I needed more things to be impressed by about Aaron. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. So John, you had amassed quite a career before even getting involved in acting. And now you've amassed quite a career as an actor. Talk to me if you would about your vision as an artist and how art became a part of your life.
0: I don't know. I like, uh, I like dramatizing. I remember um, when I was teaching uh, psychology and uh, I, uh, it all started back around 1980 or so, and I saw a buddy of mine from high school on *The Six Million Dollar Man* doing a, a walk-on appearance—you know, a couple of lines—and I said, "Oh, that's so and so. I could do that, maybe," <laughs> you know. And uh, I always had a—I a, always had a—an um, inkling to want to like dramatize things, so I—I uh, I took some workshops at night at a dinner theater, and I luckily found a mentor there who kind of put me under his wing and one thing led to another. And, uh, I got bit by the bug and my, my vision that has developed over the years, I uh, really never thought of it as a vision. It was just basically, I like to tell stories. So, and, uh, I like to tell stories as an actor, you know, uh, you know, character, I like to, to, uh, wrap myself around characters, uh, find something about the person that, you know, um, makes it interesting from their backstory and dramatize that story or write it uh, through other people uh, interpreting those stories. So basically, it's always been storytelling for me.
1: Would you say that you are more inclined towards the productions or writing side of the storytelling more than the acting, or is there an equal balance?
0: Well, right now I'm kind of split between the two. I think as I get a little older, I may, because I won't be able to memorize as much I will. <laughs> I may want to just go on the writing side or do voiceovers, you know, but, uh, but so far I've been able to uh, still uh, memorize uh, large chunks of, uh, of material, you know, uh, uh, with the Duraney show. even though I wrote that, that's you know 70 minutes on stage scripted. And Erin's a director of that. And she makes sure I don't paraphrase on those things. And, uh, and just no quite Yeah, no paraphrasing. And, uh, and just quite recently, uh, I, uh, played Lyman in other desert cities, which is, which is text heavy play. And, uh, we just, uh, we got right up the dress rehearsal and, uh, COVID hit in Florida. So I had to come back to New York. But, uh, uh so that still proves to myself that I can still, you know, uh, enjoy that part of it. And uh, so I, I kind of like balance between the two right now. You know, I, uh, you know, when the muse hits in writing, it hits. And, uh, uh, but right now I've been working on, uh, you know, tweaking things that projects that I've already written. Um, and uh, so, uh, so I'm kind of balanced right now.
1: You know? And do you find yourself sometimes falling into this trap or have, or are you, Have you matured enough to know to to hold yourself back? Because I started with producing and then directing and then acting, sometimes I will find myself as an actor because that's what I really want to do more than anything is just act. I will find myself trying to deliver something um, knowing that it's a a storytelling device part of the play or the the show. That's not my job. My job is to stay in the moment. do you find yourself falling into that trap sometimes because you are such a storyteller as well or not really?
0: Well, I mean, you know, it, you know like with, with, with a play, uh, uh, I find I have more time to play with the play. Uh, and uh, fortunately, in like in this last go around, I, the director called me up a year ago that I haven't seen in 20 years that I liked and we used to teach together. He said, you're still doing acting. I go, yeah. He says, you want to do Lyman in other desert cities? And I went, wow. Yeah. Cause I've always auditioned for it, you know? And, uh, so I knew I was going to do this. And so I spent, I would say six months, not necessarily memorizing, but familiarizing myself with the story and, and, um, trying to understand the character. Um, and, um, be true to the text okay and I had a meeting with him uh, a couple of months before we you know we went into rehearsal in uh, February I think it was and um, he kind of gave me his vision so I kind of you know and I like him so his choices seemed to be interesting and then when we got into rehearsal there was only like one or two moments where I felt maybe the way I was telling that story uh was a stronger choice than the one he was suggesting. But we kind of hammered out a compromise on that. So uh, there are times when um, uh, I I do get in trouble with some directors, you know, like I'll I'll bang heads with them. Yes, you do. Yeah, I do. And uh, (laughs) uh, about I think the story should be told this way, you know, and, and then the trick I find when you're in the moment with the other actor, unless you're doing a monologue you know, or something, we have more control over how you express yourself. Um, uh, I find over the years, what I've learned is that uh, I have to go with the energy that's given to me from the other actor in that scene, but I can't lose the essence of the character that I am. So if, for example, uh, the, it calls for me getting angry, with this person, but they're coming at me flat for whatever reason, uh, I have to ramp up that anger in a way that's justified by the scene at the end. But I can't ramp it up too quick because it wouldn't be uh, truthful in that moment because there's not enough there for me to get angry at. So I have to like learn to uh, adjust but I still have to uh, be truthful to the character. And that's taken a couple of years of, of uh, experience and working with really good actors to, the way it's been taught to me and I've learned now, it's like a valve, an emotional valve. And it's learning like, you know, like how much, how much do you let out, you know, that is truthful to uh, the scene. And, um, and, and and then that's you know it, and not to go overboard either like we can get so internalized in the moment like Bobby uh, the last Bobby Bell that I really liked this director from other desert cities he had a really good term for it he called it an emotional bubble bath He says you don't want to get caught in an emotional bubble bath because you know like you're, you're, you're emoting and let's say you're, you're breaking up into tears or you're going into some other but what happens is that you, you start playing with the bubble so much, you forget there's a scene going on, you know, it gets so internalized that there's no external communication to the audience or to the other actor. It's, uh, you know, very selfish. So uh, that's why I I find the valve analogy is good. You know, it's like learning to control it. I, I remember uh, one scene when we were rehearsing one of the younger actors, younger, like in his thirties, um, he, he was finding those moments where he had to get very emotional. And, uh, he did, but it came out like he opened the valve up a lot. But then afterwards, he says, Wow, I felt weird. And I said, Yeah, you found it. He said, Now you got to just bring the valve down a little bit, you know. And the next time
1: we did the rehearsal, he found his valve, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, so I find that kind of interesting. I pose the same question to you. You are a person that does so much in so many facets of what we do, from helping with casting, producing, directing, acting. John is more into the, the drama side of things, and you're more into the comedy. I know that's, that's not always true, but perhaps that's <laughs> one of the reasons why you, you're a good balance as a couple and a professional. As we don't know,
3: you. we're hoping.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> COVID day number what, 40 <laughs> something? I don't know. <laughs> so Aaron, so talk to me if you would about who were you growing up and where did you grow up and when did art start to decide it was part of your life?
3: Oh, wow. I grew up in one of the two worst ski towns in Colorado. So one is at the beginning of the alphabet and one is at the end of the alphabet. One of those two. Aspen? Yes.
1: You guessed Uh, it. So I was
3: the only brown one. Well, there was another little family squirreling about. But um, me, with my father, he was a green architect. So he went down to Aspen, and I lived in teepees, tree houses, um, tents, and a plastic house over a ditch, and I have pictures to prove it all. Um, And that was like, I was what, five? So it was just my dad, who was white, I'm biracial. So he was running around with this kid with this hair. (laughs) He put them in two little balls on the top of my head, and um, that was that and I grew up with some horses and ballet and, you know, whatever I tried to do to fit in with the blonde girls, the cheerleaders. And I, I grew up in Aspen. I mean, I really grew up. I went through the Ted Bundy thing. I went through everything. <laughs> so I'm a real Aspen girl, although no one would believe it. So I'm, I'm fascinated with serial killers because of that. But I was always in the arts because that's the one thing you do. It's something about mountains, creativity, painting. I was painting. I was left alone for, I mean, we're the latchkey kids. I'm the X generation. We were the latchkey kids. And my father's lucky. I had a horse as a nanny, frankly. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I fell off that thing. He wandered around. He would just wait for me to get back. I mean, it was. We were all running around. I grew up with Williams. um, uh, I babysat John Denver's kids, but I I went to school with um, Andy Williams' kids. So, I mean, I don't care. Maybe that's part of my problem of why I haven't gotten farther in this business. Because we didn't care. You know what I mean? There were artists everywhere, rich people everywhere. Everyone was doing everything everywhere. So, that's kind of my background. My dad designed geodesic domes. He was one of the first group of guys to do all of those um solar panels all of that so there i was watching all of this so i find it bizarre that people think this is avant-garde and new i'm like this was supposed to have gone on a long time ago right so i saw the first underground school built my dad got a nasa award later for it but it was a a school that's underground with grass growing on it. And the kids went in and I mean, it's, that's why I also teach. I mean, it's like, it's a no brainer. Right. And this was, I don't want anyone to know how old I really am, but you know, we're 35 if you're dyslexic or whatever, (laughs) that's what John says. If you're dyslexic. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I'm still young, you know, whatever it's um, it's that era that was very um it was the changeling i I would say the late 70s to 80s was the changeling phrase you know what what what, you know then you've got the 90s kids i went through that graduated went to oberlin had my whole thing was here in new york dancing with glow sticks (laughs) it was the crazy era but no i saw stuff everything that exists now was going on in the 80s and the 90s. The cell phones were coming out. These little computers were coming out. Everything was coming out. Thank God we got rid of big shoulder pads, which I'm not wearing today. And bad perms. So you know, I'm not I,
1: yeah. You know what's interesting? <laughs> um, because styles change and I'm sure not long from now, we're gonna be laughing hysterically at skin tight jeans and you know just like we laugh at big baggy jeans from the 90s. But the, um, actually before I get off track, I'm assuming that glow sticks are how you met John, right? <laughs> No, no glow sticks. <laughs>
0: Just... I had a flashlight. Oh,
3: <laughs> he didn't like me when he first met me. He said how I this, was- how, t-
1: Yeah, how, how did you two meet?
3: Oh, John.
1: We met at a uh,
0: screenwriting uh, workshop for <laughs> New York Women in Film and Television. And he wasn't trying to ago.
3: hit up on anyone. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there aren't too many guys in New York. Women in film and television. I was one of them. But yeah, so you—they didn't
3: like me. I was too tough. I talked too much. I still talk too much. I think she
0: heard me say something in Italian, and then she started going off in Italian.
3: Yeah, my Italian is um, better than his. So, as you know, allora, as you know, yeah.
1: So you heard him speaking in Italian and that began... No, I heard, he had,
3: I heard he had a, a piece in Italian. He was doing something to some other woman who was Italian. and I busted in, of course, as I always do. And I said something in Italian and then he talked to me and he was like, well, you were just like a little... But for some reason, here we are 12 years later.
1: <laughs> so what was going on in your, in your individual lives? What were you wrapped up in with New York when you did meet?
3: Well, like you were telling John, I and you said, you know, you want to be more of an actor. Um, so do I. But, you know, the world takes you to producing, to directing, and we have to create our own work very often. Because frankly, the horse and I can say that because I clean it up and I work with it, um, gets so much that you're like, okay, I have to do this, 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 and this. And also women especially women of color at that time, 12 years ago there, you know, when Obama was elected, it seemed like everybody wanted people, my color light, not too black. Cause I'm not black. First of all, I'm not black enough. And I'm not white enough, obviously. So I had longer, I had my hair all pulled down. It was all blown out. I had all that long stuff going down and I decided to go natural. Uh, Actually done by uh, Diana Ross's daughter, Rhonda, who ran up. John was actually dating me at the time. Ran up and stuck her fingers in my hair at a party. And he was like, who the heck was that? And I'm like, that was Rhonda Ross. And she was like, go natural. (laughs) So I went natural. (laughs) So Rhonda Ross stuck her fingers in my hair and said, go natural. This is crazy. So I did. And I didn't do it quite right. Because like I said, I grew up with a white father. I did not have a black mother. So this is part of my new solo show, which you can talk about later. I've been on this journey to find her for most of my life, but now I'm very, very on it. But um, so growing natural hair, and then it sometimes goes curly. Sometimes it goes crazy. Today it's crazy. It's COVID crazy. <laughs> so, and all these women, just so you know, you're lucky you don't have a riot in your neighborhood because these sisters, they want their hair salons and their nails and whatever done. They want their stuff done. So it's getting bad up here in Harlem
1: to see it. So I'm your average privileged white guy, but I love when black women wear their hair naturally because I've because any other time there's a part of me saying, I wonder what they actually look like. And so I love I love yeah. your, your hairstyle. But Yeah, John says he likes it too, but he's he's lucky I don't spend eighty
3: dollars a month to go psh anymore. So yeah. And then your nails get to be done Then you got to get your toes done and you got, I mean, no, it's a, it's a culture. Now the white girls do something else. The black girls do something else. I'm mixed. So I got to do both. So it's a big drama.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, you it. know, so things like Chris Rock's good hair was a real edu- yes, absolutely. education. Believe him, believe him. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that is educational stuff <laughs> yes. for, for someone like me that did not grow up with this understanding. Like, You know, it's a different culture, so.
3: Well, think of my poor father in Aspen. He did not know what to do with me, right? So he took me to some black women (laughs) who were really mean. (laughs) They told him how to part my hair down the middle, braid the side, and they did the two little puffballs. I'll send you a picture. You can post it. I don't care. It's all all on my website. It's all good.
1: That is happening. Um,
3: And he called them bunny, he called them bunny tails to make it nice and neat for me. But actually they're little afro puffs and almost every little black girl running around up here has little afro puffs. But he he didn't know. The fact that he could do two basic hairstyles was good. He parted it down the middle and <laughs> just put puffs on and then he would leave them for weeks and I'd be riding on a horse, I'd have twigs in there. It was terrible. <laughs> So, no, I'm sorry. And now we've left John out. John's just like shaking his head going, see, see what I deal with, see what I deal with, see what I deal with.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, you, not only do you speak four languages you're you're into equestrian still.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately I haven't for about a year and a half at the moment. Cause I worked with a company that wasn't quite, it doesn't matter. I work with them for five years. I am a therapeutic riding instructor. I'm certified. So that is taking children with special needs or adults or even veterans and using the work of the horse to do therapy. So it would be like painting, you know, or, or singing or art. Or, or, but because we're all actors, I pull in a bunch of other stuff, too. But um, basically, the therapeutic riding is the motion of the horse works with your core. And so, if you can get, uh, especially also the autistic kid or someone with, um, uh, I don't know, I have kids with with braces on their legs, etc. That's why I can't work right now. I cannot do six feet away. I must mount them on the horse and dismount them. So I have to, you know, and they don't like they don't like masks. And I also have kids who are hearing impaired. So. I have found some masks that I can get the bridge of the nose where my face is seen. Plus, I'm very vainly annoyed that I'm putting lotion all over my face and no one sees my face. I'm very annoyed. Sorry, it's a vanity thing about that. <laughs> John just shaking his head. <laughs> but seriously, people, and especially people with, with of color with a mask, we're, we're regarded differently than than you know white dudes with a bandana yeah we're already of color we're already menacing you saw terry bless her little heart i mean i have a pit john is treated differently when he walks the dog i know for a fact than when i am so and i have different friends and he has different friends she's a pit okay this is my fourth pit he wasn't even a pit dad till he met me so he's now a pit daddy and she's his little so there you go he's he's a pit daddy um but they, they look at you differently. People have always walked around people of color. They always disperse us. They always do everything. And this has brought this whole thing into, I mean, I have these like annoying parents who let their dogs off the leash. Their kids are running around kicking a soccer ball. John seen it in the park. way in, John. Nod yeah. your head.
0: Recently, there was some... Uh I was walking along Morningside Park, and a bunch of the teenage uh, black kids were complaining that you know the cops came by and dispersed them, you know, uh, because they were congregating. Some had masks on, some didn't, but they were complaining about uh, white people not being dispersed further down Morningside Park, doing essentially the same thing on the grass. So, yeah, it happens. that happens. And well, that has to be, is-
1: well, that has to be that has to be that's part of your reality as a a professional and romantic couple is that you're constantly being faced with a particular kind of, of, uh, I don't know, bias, or what you'd call
3: it? Well, he's got a lot of Italian friends, and when they find out I speak Italian, they get all verklempt, as we would say.
0: (laughs) I think also, you know, because we hang out in Harlem a lot, it's it's not, not as bad as it would be if we went down you know uh south maybe or even we ain't you know, going
3: south honey
0: <laughs> or uh or even in parts of uh uh brooklyn or uh, staten island you know so uh or so yeah so we yeah. i don't i don't i don't feel uncomfortable so much in harlem uh maybe we would if you know we went go to hinterland somewhere where people Harlem's are more,
3: being gentrified so, you know, you got all these people who are like, ooh, we've got the light-skinned girl who's at the party who speaks four languages. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She's the special guest. Yeah, But,
0: but we're, getting, we're getting more diversified up here, but we're also getting a lot of foreigners that come in and live. So they're not so much yeah. into that. You know, a lot of Europeans.
3: Oh, the comedy thing, you wanted me to answer you. Well, I'll just tell you, once you do comedy, everything else is pretty easy. Easier.
1: You had mentioned that you, you speak four languages, and... John, uh, you you mentioned something about veterans as well, which John is. So John. My Navy boy. (laughs) Yeah, how long were you in the service? And and then before we run out of time also, uh, if Aaron, you could explain how you speak so many languages. (laughs) I
0: was in the service active duty for about uh, two and a half years in the early 70s. I was a Naval officer. I went to uh, OCS for six months in, in Newport, Rhode Island which I think they closed down that naval school now and commissioned as an ensign. I was a electronics material officer and sent on a ship in the Mediterranean, the Caribbean for, from the early, in the early seventies. And then I, um, I got out of all active duty and, uh, went back to grad school in the GI bill, but stayed in the reserves until 1980. So, my discharge, my honorable discharge date was 1980, but my active duty was two and a half years and uh, served in the med squadron. <laughs> a, yeah. I volunteered because, you know, my back then they had draft lottery numbers and uh, mine was low. So I said, well, I was going to become cannon fodder in Vietnam. So I tried to get into public health service, but you needed a PhD at the time to get in there. I didn't have it. Coast Guard, forget it, they were all zoned out. Um, so the Navy looked interesting. My dad was in the Navy and I was married at that time. And my father-in-law, um, was in the Navy. So it was kind of like, I liked the concept of, I like water. So, um, so I went into that, I, you know, I learned to be a ship driver and, you know, and, got, you know, it, officer of the deck and in, in international wars and all that. So, you know, I got some skill sets out of that and, uh, I liked it. I really, you know, I like I me, mean, there were a lot I didn't like about it. That's why I got out of active duty. But, uh, but the camaraderie was interesting and i got to see a lot of different countries in europe and, uh, and the
1: caribbean so yeah and nice. that is that it seems to be what most veterans talk about uh, what mattered the most was their buddies and camaraderie yeah more than, more yeah. than anything else that's what that's what seems to be the. Combat. well you know i
0: mean I, I was never in a combat situation although i was walked down uh, a hill at bayonet point in greece we were on the wrong uh could oh, read boy. the signs yeah <laughs> and uh that was when the dictatorship. Was in, in power, Papadopoulos, and uh, um, with the movie Z uh, was created back in the early '70s based on that story. And, uh, um, but uh, <clears throat> I, yeah, I never never saw a combat. But you know what they say? In combat is uh, you, uh, particularly the army guys that were in Vietnam. They, you know, you don't you don't fight for your country. You fight for the guy next to you in the foxhole. That's what so, everybody. Yeah, it's very you know, So
1: yeah. So and um, you speak how many languages, John? Me, I English and uh, I can
0: I can fake a little bit. I can I'm conversational Italian, but uh, and my French is really bad, but I can read it and I can I, I know a couple of words. I what I do in French, when people talk to me in French, I throw out random French words, you know as if I understand everything. Like, no, he, no, no,
3: no, no. He, he, he speaks like he thinks he's Inspector Clouseau.
0: <laughs> it does come out like that, but, but I've had friends, people say, I knew that, your, accent, your accent is excellent, and I go, thank you that much. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Just so you know, he almost got... He he was caught by Luc Besson making fun of him. That's to, another
0: that's for another time. That's another uh, interview.
3: That's another time. That that's uh, yeah, producing quickly, the only reason I speak for that is because I lived and went to all the com- and I studied and I was on scholarship and I made so there, that's why.
1: So if you could, with the thirty seconds or so we have left. I, I nothing, talking man. Yeah. We could this could go on for three hours, I'm sure. And you're I, in I, it. I am <laughs> it, I am in it
3: you are in
0: it <laughs> uh, yeah we're, we're producing a, a webinar format uh stage reading of uh uh the, it won a lot of awards a play called say nothing that deals with the italian american experience uh, in new york city during world war ii based on an untold story of the incarceration of italians in american internment camps and uh which is the backstory but it deals with the family and uh, uh we're looking forward to inviting up to 500 people um, on the webinar on june 7th uh Isaac graciously has agreed to reprise his role of multiple characters in it. And um, we're looking forward to it. We're looking to get the word out to produce it as a play. And uh, we've been for several years trying to raise money at for
1: the movie version, but uh, well, the play thank, may be a way to go. Thank you both so much. We're about yes, to get cut off. And it's been a pleasure seeing your faces. No, no.
3: And just so you know, the painting behind me is by John.